Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Amen. Well, good morning. It's so good to just be together to celebrate these kinds of moments. My name is Ian. I'm the pastor here. If you're new here this morning, we are Ecclesia. We're a brand new church. We've been meeting in this space for about six months, and uh, it's just a joy to be together. So I have a question for you this morning as you begin to settle in and to ponder. What's your vision for your life? What do you want to see happen? And when you, when you think about that question, what's your vision for your life? That's a big question, right? And we think about so often, we think about the things that we will do, the things that we will accomplish. Now, for some of you in here, your time of like rampant accomplishment is winding down, right? So do you still have a vision for your life? See, when we think of a vision, we tend to think about all the things that we're going to accomplish. And for those of, of you who've lived a long time in this life, you can tell us, you can tell us stories of your experience, of what life actually throws at you, and the kinds of encouragements and discouragements that come. When you have a vision, you're moving towards something, but life happens. So what's your vision for your life? Now, when you thought of that, did you think of what you would do? Did you think about the kind of person that you might become? You see, we've been talking through what's our vision at this church? What do we want to see happen? And towards the end of this past summer, we hosted a retreat that was sort of directed in this, um, in this direction. How are we going to be a people who accomplish what God has for us? But so much of it, too, was about what kind of people What kind of people are we going to be along the way? Because to be honest, so many times we set out to do something and accomplish something, and what we realize on the way is that God has other plans, or he's doing something far more creative and surprising than we would have imagined. But what we see that is consistent is the kind of people that Jesus is inviting us to become. And so this morning, we want to talk about just a simple framework for how do we move, how do we move towards a vision of both what we will accomplish in the world and the kinds of people that we will be. The philosopher Dallas Willard has this simple paradigm he calls V-I-M, VIM, 
And so, Joanna, you can put that first slide up on the screen. So, vision is the V. Intention, so you, your, your intention is to move towards that vision. And then the means, how are you going to do it? And Dallas Willard says of each, he says of the vision, it's nourishing our mind with good and godly ideas, images, information, and the ability to think creates our vision. So you see, you can go back to that last slide too, Joe. You start to move towards a vision. We tend to think of the vision as the end, but you have to have a vision, a map of what you're trying to accomplish, what you're trying to become. And so the vision really forms the beginning and the end. Dallas Willard then says of, of our intentions, from these we intend to be formed so that God is a constant presence in our mind, crowding out false ideas, destructive images, misinformation about God, and crooked beliefs. And so we see this vision of, of who God is and who he's calling us to be. And then our attentions are formed. From these, we try to move towards that picture. And the last piece is our means. As for means, certain tried and true disciplines aid us in the transformation of our thought life toward the mind of Christ. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot transform our ideas, our images, our information but we can adopt certain practices that indirectly have that effect. So in Psalm 24, we have kind of an encapsulation of this, and we want to walk through that this morning. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So this is the vision of the world. When they come into the temple to worship, the proclamation is made, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. Now, in our Western cultural story, religion is a personal choice, a way of seeing the world that helps us along, that maybe brings us comfort and helps us to live and to make ethical choices. Now, this is not inherently bad, but it's not also the biblical vision of the world. Here at the beginning of Psalm 24, we have the biblical vision. The earth belongs to God. It is his because he made it. And not just, it, not just the world as this kind of object. Every person who lives in it belongs to God. This is the vision that the Bible gives us of what it means to live in light of his kingdom. Now, you're gathered here in a middle school auditorium on a rainy day in Princeton, New Jersey. There's quite a few of us in here, but nothing compared to the 8 billion people in the world. And here we are declaring, here I am telling you that this is the vision for the world, that the God revealed in the Bible is not just my preferred God, that he in fact is God of all the world. He is God of every single person who's ever lived and who lives currently. And on its face, isn't that absurd? Like, isn't that kind of foolish? Like, we are this little collection of people, and we're saying, we know the story that forms the fabric of all the earth. Like, that's an insane claim to make. How can this one God, especially when you think about the varieties of cultures and of people in our world, like, you don't even have to go far, right? Like, in New Jersey, New Jersey is one of the most diverse states in the country, like, you can drive through another town and be almost in a completely different world culturally. And so how can we begin to say that this story is true of all the world, and yet here it is, this unapologetic declaration that all of it 
Every kingdom, every, uh, every political party, every blade of grass, every human soul has something to do with this God. And the Hebrew Bible, and the Bible at large, makes this claim consistently that the earth is God's because he made it. Maybe for some of you, you've, you've undertaken a project, you've gone out to work in, in the yard, or you, you made a picture, and you had a vision for what that, that, that piece of art or that, that uh, thing that you were making was going to be. And it would be weird for you to like go and paint a wall and say, this, this wall that I painted is to sit on, right? Like, that would be quite strange. Like, if guests are coming into your house, and you're like, just sit on the wall right there, they would look at you strangely, as they should, And so what the Bible is claiming is that because God has made the world, because God is the one who authored all of it, that something about this God, that this God has something to say to every single piece of our lives. Verse 2 tells us that God is the maker of all the earth. And then he gives us this interesting detail. It says that he established it on the seas and on the waters. Now, why would David, the one who wrote this psalm, say it this way? Is he saying that God just really likes beachfront property? He's like, oh, you know, put it on the water. What a great place to live. The ancients had a concept of the deep, of the waters as a place of chaos, of uncertainty, a place even of evil. Because the image of God setting the world upon the waters, as Psalm 2 states, is David's way of saying that he has established his kingdom of beauty, of order, of shalom, right in the midst of the chaos of our world. Now this place is the first claim in its fullest setting. If all you hear is the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then the natural question is, God, what are you doing up there? Right? Because this is the argument that's so often and so powerful to say like, okay, if there's a God, then why is the world the way that it is? But Psalm 24 is saying there are, there are two competing visions of the world. That, that God's vision, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That he wants everybody to know their life in relation to him. That he has established this world on the waters. That it's in the midst of this world of chaos. The biblical vision is not one of ignoring of the world, of coming into the temple or to the middle school auditorium and acting like all the bad stuff in the world doesn't exist, that all the pain and the confusion out there isn't real. Friends, the Bible for me is the most honest book ever written. The Bible is honest about the goodness of God. It's honest about how difficult it is to have faith. It's honest about the beauty of every woman and man. It's honest about our propensity to sin. It's honest about the pain of loss and death. And yet still it's honest about how unshakable hope and love truly are. Friends, I'm not the person who's going to point to you and you're going to ask me a question about scientific theory and I'm going to point to you a place in the Bible. No, Psalm 104 says the earth was established on its foundations. It shall never be moved. And yet Galileo and Copernicus came along and saying like, actually, the earth revolves around the sun and it rotates. What I'm saying to you is the Bible is honest, not because it has an answer for every little question that we would ask. The Bible is honest because it asks all the questions. 
And it allows us to give voice to those questions. If you read the Psalms, you read people that are faithful people saying, God, where are you? If you read Lamentations, you see the destruction of a city and these people are looking out and they're weeping and they say, God, are you seeing this? If the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, could you do something? The Bible and the life that it portrays is leading us towards a fullness, is giving us a vision of what it looks like to live under God's reign. And it says right here in Psalm 24 that everything, every person, everything owes its existence to this God. And so we have to bring our whole world and our reality under his rule and his reign. Now, the question is, who owns the world? We know who runs the world. Thank you, Beyonce. We tend to atomize the world. We divide it into ownership. Ownership is dependent upon what we were talking about, right? So who owns the world? Well, what, what are we speaking of? The world becomes fragmented and contentious. But what Psalm 24 is saying to us, and this should give us so much hope, is that there is a coherence that underlies the world. There is a, a, a coherence that underlies because it is all the artwork of this gracious and this sovereign artist. And here at Ecclesia, when we talk about our vision, our, our vision, the place that we're trying to get to, is a full life. We want to live fully in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, what we find is that a full life is not about having more stuff. It's not about having more things on the calendar. It's not even about having more friends. A full life is bringing, as Psalm 24 directs us to direct our vision, bringing every bit of our lives under the reign of Jesus. A full life is what you saw on display here this morning. People that are saying something about the way that I parent, something about the way that I raise my kids has, has everything to do with who Jesus is. A full life is you understanding your work and your vocation are not somehow secular, not split off from the sacred, but are opportunities to meet with Jesus. A full life is bringing your pain bringing your longings, the things that you'd love to see happen and saying, God, I trust you. And as a church during this series, this is the last week in our vision series, we've been asking these two questions. What, what does God want from us? What does he want to do in this place? And we've been asking, what kind of people are we to be on the way? And so this morning, we want to look at, we see this vision, this everything is the Lord's, it's all his. And now we want to look at how do we get there? How do we begin to be a people who live into this vision? Now, uh, a couple of years ago, actually Sullivan's first Christmas, we were traveling back home, uh, which is our home to Oklahoma, to spend the holidays with our family. And we had kind of a rough start to the day. We usually try to compress our travels into this like really short amount of time. And so what that does is it leaves you kind of a short connection period. And so we sat on the runway in Philly for like three hours. And I'm, I'm a pastor, so I'm holy. So I wasn't mad at all. I was raging. And then we get to Charlotte where we were connecting. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm like a selective legalist. I'm very picky about what I'm, like if it suits me, like if I, if, you know, I'm, I'm not a legalist about the speed limit. Like I, I'm fine going 10 miles over. I'm a legalist that you should be going at least the speed limit, but I'm not, I'm not too legalist about that. 
but, but I'm a selective legalist. And what I found, we, we made our connection. We, we land in Charlotte. We hustle over to the gate. And I get to the door, and the door is closed. Now, apparently, once they close the door, they do not open it again. And so here's Courtney and I with our three kids trying to get home. It's, I, I think it was Christmas Day, this one. Trying to get home for Christmas, and the door is shut. And the guy comes back out. And he says, you have to be here 10 minutes before, otherwise the door's shut. And I said, no, no, man. It was 12 minutes before. I looked at the clock, and I was so mad, and I'm like raging. But anyway, so this, this makes us have to spend the whole day in the Charlotte airport. So long day, three kids, just want to be home for Christmas, got up super early, you know, just trying to make it through the day. And that's when you're just trying to hold on as a parent. You're like, all right, if I can just keep my kids from burning this place down, we'll be good. So we finally get on our flight that's going to take us back to Tulsa. And I'm sitting there. I'm holding Sully. Sully's at that age where if you just hold him long enough, he'll go to sleep. But what we didn't realize is Sully's tummy had not been feeling well. So I'm holding Sullivan. I've got him in my seat. Courtney and the girls are across the aisle. And Sully's been sleeping. And I've kind of been in and out of sleep. And Sully wakes up, turns his head, throws up on the guy next to me and then goes back to sleep. Now, for me, I'm watching all this happen. Courtney's asleep from me across the aisle. The guy that he threw up on is sleeping. So I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, Courtney, Courtney, what do I do? She's like, what, what, what happened? I'm like, Sully just threw up on this guy. I'm like, should I wake him up? Courtney's like, no, let him sleep. <laughs> and so eventually, this poor young man wakes up to the reality that he is covered in infant vomit. And at that point, there's just not a lot you can say, right? Like, you're stuck. It's like being in an elevator with somebody. You're just like, all right, hey, uh, man, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but my son threw up on you while you were sleeping, and you are, you are covered in vomit right now. You, that may be a situation that you want to address. And so I, I, I feel around my pocket, and I had, $50, I had a $50 bill, which is not a common occurrence for me, and I was just like, here, I just, I just feel like you should, you should have this. This should be yours. We'll pay for that. And then I had to sit next to him the rest of the flight, and he stunk. It's like, man, clean that up. Now, he, here's the thing. It's a terrible thing to have to tell people bad news, right? It's a terrible thing to have to, like, shake somebody awake and be like, hey, um, actually, you're, you're covered in vomit. And it would be one thing for us if we had bad news to share. But as the church, as Ecclesia, we have great news to share. If the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then there is a movement towards something beautiful, towards hope. And if we believe that God is the creator of every single person, if we believe that every person in this creation owes something to this God, that this God wants to know their name. You know, I was talking to a woman yesterday at a, at a function, and she said, you know, all the religions are basically the same story. And I said, well, you know, that may be true. And I just said, have you ever considered that if there is a God, and she was sort of agnostic to that idea, I just said, have you ever considered that if there is a God, that he may want to know you, 
the same way that you want to know your own children, the same way that you want to delight in relationship with them. And so for us as Ecclesia, the way that we start to bring our life under this rule and this reign of God is just by telling the truth about the world. And we have good news to share, that there is beauty and hope and goodness that awaits every person. The theologian Karl Barth has this to say. He says, the Christian message at its heart is gospel, which means good news, a joyous proclamation of good news. It says that God's kingdom although not yet visible, has come already that everything has been accomplished. It protests against every form of pessimism, tragedy, and skepticism. Friends, this is a big vision to say that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And I don't know about you, but I don't want a vision for my life that's not big enough for the whole world. A, big, a vision big enough for every single person. So what kind of people do we need to become in order to live out this vision? What kinds of intentions do we need to take on? The psalmist writes in verse 3, he says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, the God of Jacob. Now, for the people of ancient Israel to whom this was written, the mountain of the Lord and his holy place was the temple. The question was essentially asking, who can be near to God? And if you've heard things about ritual cleanings and sacrifices, all of that sort of centers around this temple environment. But the question is asking, who can be near to this God? And for us, this question essentially echoes that question, who are we to be? And the psalmist lists these things. He says, clean hands, pure heart, trust God, do not swear by what is false. These are the the intentions, the way that we intend to live. Now for these people, clean hands were about dealing honestly and fairly in the world. Clean hands were about being an honest neighbor, about dealing uh, justly with the people that you lived around. Pure hearts were undivided, devoted to God. They would long to see him and his will done. The one who does not trust in an idol doesn't put their hope in the things of this world. For the, for the Bible cosmology, an idol is just something that is of this world, that's not sovereign over it. The psalmist says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Idolatry is simply worshiping the things in the world as though they are God. Things like power and money and success and thinking like, these will save me. These things will form my identity. And the psalmist writes, the one who does not swear by a false God, who doesn't deal falsely with his neighbor, these words taken all together give us an image of what it means simply to, as Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love God and to love people. And around here we say, love Jesus and love people. And so this is our intention. As we live into this vision of what is a full life, what is a life that really declares that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, for us it's to love Jesus as best we can and to love our neighbors. So the vision is big. Jesus is king over everything. The intention is strong. Love God, love people. It all sounds nice, but how do we do it? What are the means? And this is where I want to land here this morning. Three things I think that we can do. 
to live into the reality of who God is calling us to be. And if you're here this morning and you're here for the first time, this is a journey that's available and open to anybody who wants to come along with us because this is God's mission in the world. So what are the means? How do we live in light of the earth being the Lord's and all that is in it? How do we be a people with clean hands and pure hearts? How do we trust God and not swear by the false things of this world? Well, the first thing I think we seek and we cultivate is the presence of God. David says that blessing and vindication are characteristic of those who seek his face. This psalm was likely a commemoration of when the Ark of the Lord was brought into the temple. And if you don't know what the Ark of the Lord is, watch Indiana Jones. The Ark of the Covenant was a strange box with poles attached to it that signified that the Lord was present, that his manifest presence was near. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David, King David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. There's this giant procession, and David leads the parade, and he dances at the head of it, leading the ark into the city. And the thing throughout the Bible's story of the people of God that marked off the people of Israel was this unexplainable and gracious manifestation of the presence of God. And so for us as a church, how do we begin to live into the reality that the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness? Well, first, we have to be a people who primarily seek the face of the Lord. The face is just an idiom for his presence that he is near. In order to live in the reality and the light of God's reign and rule, in order to love Jesus and to love people, we have to be a people that are marked off by God's presence. This is why every Sunday morning when we gather, when we worship, and when we give space to the Spirit to speak, we're saying it with our actions and with our acknowledgments that, God, you're here. God, it's not just an idea that we're worshiping. It's not just something to comfort ourselves, to make us feel better. God, you're really here. As Jesus promised us, behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And when we gather in the mornings, and when we seek God in the times in our own houses, in our own workplaces, we acknowledge that God is truly God over all the earth. And so first, what are the means? The first mean is that we would be people of the presence of God. The second one, it would be people who are formed in this reality. In the last part of the psalm, God is depicted as a warrior. This phrase, the Lord of hosts, strong and mighty in battle. What we see in the life of Jesus is that the ancient sort of understanding of what a God that fought for them was, is completely misguided. You see, for the people of Israel, they thought that when they went to battle and they went to to fight another nation, that, that not only were they fighting it out with swords and spears, you know, kind of on earth, but in the unseen realm that there were gods of each city or each nation that were fighting it out in the heavens. And it was pretty clear whose god was stronger, right? Whichever nation wins the battle, well, their god is is stronger, And here what we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus fights for us, but Jesus doesn't kill his enemies. Rather, he dies for them. He he doesn't fight uh, against them. He goes to a cross for them. And we pray because we worship this kind of God who fights against all that opposes his will on our behalf. He fights against the blindness and the numbness that keeps so many people from knowing who they are in Christ. He fights against white supremacy and systemic racism. He fights against a world where children don't have enough to eat. 
And what we find is that this kind of battle, like we can't go out in the streets and, and fight this kind of battle. We have to be people cultivating the presence of God through prayer. Again, the theologian Karl Barth, who stood against the Nazis in 1930s Europe, he says to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, but it has been disordered. There is chaos. There are things that threaten that. And so how do we begin to live as a people that acknowledge that God is the sovereign ruler of everything? First, we seek his presence. Second, we are people of prayer. We are formed in prayer. Prayer is a part of our work and joining with God in his fight. This Lord God, strong and mighty, to be people who are partaking and living our lives in partnership with him. The last one. It says in the psalm, it says, lift up the gates. Now, historically, gates have been places at the edge of a city. Gates are designed to keep unwanted things out. They're designed for control. When you have gates around a city, you can control who comes in and who goes out. As Ecclesia, we want to invite the gates to be lifted up. The king of glory to come in so that we might go out. The gates are the portals to the border spaces where those that are far from God or those that are near to him but have been pushed to the margins of our society reside. And I think one of the most important questions that is being asked in our culture it's not simply, is there a God? It's, it's, who is he? Who is, if there's a God, then who is it? And this question is put forth in the, in the sort of liturgical formation in this passage. Who is this king of glory? And for many in our culture, they're asking, like, is there anything more? And that we had this beautiful discussion in our first Alpha class this past Wednesday that was kind of centered around this. How can we know? How can we begin to live into this reality? And for others of people, we, we, we live in a world that is so comfortable, that is often so distracted, that people aren't even asking the question. They've never stopped to consider, is there something more than this? The philosopher Charles Taylor called this world an imminent frame, that basically it's like a closed system. There's nothing getting in or out. But we ask the question, who is this king of glory? Who is this God? And for us as people, as a church, we want to help people give voice to this question. We want to help them to see that Jesus is better than they ever would have imagined. Jesus tells us as he speaks on his own holy mountain in Luke 6, that blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. You see, friends, what we find is that our answer, who is this King of glory, is often so upside down to the way that the world would, would define it. People think of God as this old white guy up there with a beard throwing lightning bolts. But what Jesus shows us is something quite different. Jesus shows us that as we go out, as we lift up the gates and we say, this is the king of glory. This is the one that you've been waiting for. That people begin to see who they are and who they were made to be. And friends, as we reflect on this psalm, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. It says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? 
Who can climb his holy hill? And again, we traditionally have envisioned this as Olympus, as this place where the gods are in this far-off temple. But what the story and the gospel of Jesus shows us is that the holy hill of God is not this far-off temple up on Mount Olympus. It's not this place that's removed from the world. It's a hill outside of Jerusalem where Jesus gives his life for every single person. Jesus comes in his kingdom and he says, I am the rightful king of all the earth, but I'm not going to overtake this world by battle and by bloodshed. I'm going to overtake this world by giving of my own life on a cross. This is who Jesus is. Jesus shows us that to have clean hands and a pure heart is not to remove ourselves from the world, but to immerse ourselves in it, to give of ourselves. And so friends, this morning we live out the reality that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it when we live as Jesus did. Because Jesus gives us a picture for what it means to live life in light of who God is. Jesus gives us the vision. He gives us the intentions and he gives us the means. And so friends, this morning as we go back to, can you go back to that first chart? The vision, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, every piece of our life brought under his rule and his reign. This is the picture that we get, the intentions that we would be a holy people that show the world what God looks like and the means, God's presence, prayer and formation, and going outside the gates just as our Savior did on behalf of the world. God's mission in the world. And so we want to be people who not only have a vision for what it looks like for God to be king of our lives, but what it would mean for God to be king right here in Princeton, New Jersey. And by living out the life of Jesus, we live out that abundance and that beauty in the world. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you have shown us, God, not only that you are, love us, God, that you, with words, God, that you sort of speak over us, God, but you've showed us by your actions. God, you showed us by giving yourself on the cross, by climbing the truly holy hill. Lord, that we would have seen as a forsaken place, that we would have seen as a God-lost place. God, it's where you showed yourself most fully and most truly. And so, Jesus, would you help us to see the reality of the world, that the earth is yours, God that we owe our lives to you, that every piece, everything that seems so fragmented and disjointed finds harmony in your rule and your reign. God, would you help us to have hope that you have established the worlds on the waters, God, that right in the midst of the chaos of our world, you have established order and peace and shalom and justice and beauty. And Jesus, would you help us to be a people who go out of the gates, God, who help people ask the question, who is this king of glory? And then answer it with the beauty of who you are, just as you did. God, by feeding the hungry, by telling stories, by celebrating, God, that we would be a people who mark off what it means to live in your kingdom. God, the earth is yours. You reign over us, God. And we give our hearts to you, Lord Jesus. We love you to your we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.